Top shot. Diving play by Ozzy. Long throw. You wouldn't believe it. Tommy with a drive. Deep center field. Away back. Goal. And Scott Rowland hits one into deep left field. Back at the wall. A leap. And a catch. Andy Chavez takes a home run and turns it into a double play. Into deep left center from Mitchell. And we'll see you tomorrow. Welcome back to Coax Baseball. My name is Travis Labor. I'm joined by Scott Brady. As always, how are you doing, Scott? I am doing just dandy. How are you today, Travis? I'm doing great. We got some 80s baseball. 80s baseball. Your That's dad's 40 favorite years ago. era of baseball. My dad's favorite era of baseball. Everyone's yeah, my... dad's favorite era of baseball. Exactly. And my dad hates baseball, but uh, which is why I like it, by the way. But that's a story for another day. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, yeah, no. It, yeah, 80s. 80s is a long time ago because, like, obviously you don't remember it because you were not alive. Um, I was alive. But I wasn't, and in 1988, which is what our game is from today, the Clevelands and the Toronto Blue Jays, our two favorite teams, going head-to-head in 1988. I was definitely not watching baseball in 1988. I was three in this season, so I was not aware of baseball for another year, probably. And then it was really, again, like I mentioned in the in the first episode, like 1991 was kind of when I gained baseball consciousness, as it were. Yeah, 88, I would have been negative four. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, that's how that works. Mm -hmm. That is totally how that works. (laughs) Yeah, so, um, yeah, uh, we have this game. It's a a good one. The first two games we have were kind of duds in terms Mm -hmm. of games, like uh, the the 7-1 Orioles win and the 13-0 Cleveland rubbing of the White Sox. This is the first one that would have an exciting WPA chart. Exactly, man. It was a good watch. Mm-hmm. It was a good. It was a good watch, and I got all kinds of things to say about Buck Martinez. Yeah, I was gonna say because this has the uh, <laughs> the uh, Labatt uh, theme, the Labatt uh, baseball theme, or whatever that you. Uh... Well, the, the music's different. And very importantly, oh, the music okay. that this we use different you... from. Okay, I wasn't yeah, sure if those, it was the same for those or not. listening. We're recording this. We haven't actually released the first episode, so Scott has not heard the the wonderful uh, yeah. Labatt's Blue Jays baseball theme music. See so yeah, that the the Labatt's baseball Labatt's Blue Jays baseball that we have for the podcast is from ninety one to ninety four. Uh, this okay. was this I was see. a different thing and not nearly as entertaining. Although I did love the TSN black and yellow. Oh, it's that's gold. TSN still exists, but it's basically just an offshoot of ESPN at this point, so it looks like ESPN. Uh, but back then it didn't. It looked awesome. Okay, so let's get to the game. Yeah. I'm going to do, uh, you know, the thing that we do where we kind of kind of like a sports center sort of highlight package deal. Uh, maybe we'll get better at this as time goes on. I'm home alone this time, so maybe I'll have more pep when I'm doing it. I don't know. We'll see. I'm not, my, I'm not a peppy person particularly, so one never knows. Okay, so it's June 7th, 1988. In the small rural Ontario farming community of Budley, Ontario, Scott McCracken turns four years old. <laughs> <laughs> There's a little inside joke there. Yeah. He'll listen to this. He'll know. We find ourselves in Cleveland, Ohio, on the shores of Lake Erie at Municipal Stadium. The mistake on the lake, the smell of hope, 
on the sweaty back of many years of futility wafts through the air as the second place Clevelands take the field. Second place! Second place. They're 34-21, only a game and a half behind the first place Yankees. This is the highest Cleveland has been in the standings this late in the year since 1976. Yep. Things are looking up for our boys. A solid lineup is joined by an emerging pitching staff. And this is the year! The Blue Jays are in town, a team possibly at the end of their window of contention. After five consecutive winning seasons, they find themselves in sixth place in the American League East at 27-30. and 30. Two teams headed in opposite directions, wouldn't you know? The lineups. Pitching for the Blue Jays, Todd Sotomayor, who was pitching in episode one. This is a much younger version of him mm-hmm. in his rookie season in 1988. He had a 5.29 ERA coming into the game. Cleveland, on the other hand, counters with left-hander Scott Bales who coming into the game had a 4.30 ERA. If you've never heard of Scott Bales, that's okay. I had never heard of him before this start either. I Onto might the game. have a tops card of him somewhere. The name was familiar I probably to do, me. too. Yeah. I, I, we probably, yeah, I probably do. do, too. He pitched for a while. Yes. For a long time. I just mm-hmm. don't remember him. He was just very unremarkable. So the lineups. The Blue Jays. Leading it off is the shortstop, Tony Fernandez, the slick-fielding, awesome player. He's amazing. He's amazing. Tony Fernandez is incredible. Un- unimpeachable, Tony Fernandez. Center fielder Lloyd Mosby hits second. The right fielder Jesse Barfield hits third. In the cleanup spot is the left fielder George Bell. First baseman Fred McGriff hits in the five spot, batting sixth at third base Kelly Gruber. In the seventh spot, the DH and certified big man Cecil Fielder. The catcher hitting eighth is Pat Borders and batting ninth at second base is Manny Lee. For the Clevelands, leading it off is second base. Uh, at second base is perpetual 45-year-old Julio Franco. First baseman <laughs> Willie Upshaw bats second, the former Blue Jay. Center fielder Joe Carter hits third. In the cleanup spot at third base is Brooke Jacoby, batting fifth in left field, Mel Hall. In the sixth spot, the right fielder Corey Snyder, batting seventh, the DH Dave Clark. In the eighth spot at shortstop, 36-year-old shortstop Ron Washington. And batting ninth, big catcher, tall catcher, Andy Allenson. All right, on to the game. Bales and Stottlemyre each get through the first two innings unscathed, but then leading off the bottom of the third Tall catcher, Andy Allenson, takes a belt-high fastball from Stottlemyre and drills it over the left-field fence, making it one to nothing. Cleveland, Allenson's third of the season. Stottlemyre regains himself and retires the next three in order, including some fucking heat to Joe Carter to strike him out. Bales, meanwhile, having the start of his life, retiring the top of the fourth in order, hasn't given up a hit through four. What? Bottom of the fourth. And Cleveland adds to their lead, with runners on the corners and one out. Dave Clark nubs one in front of home plate. A sort of swinging bunt. Stottlemyre can't make the play in time. It's an infield hit. Jacoby scores, and it's 2 to nothing. Next batter, Wash. Ron Washington singles to left. Brings in Mel Hall to make it 3 to nothing. Cleveland. Bales, meanwhile, keeps cruising. Into the top of the six, Washington makes an incredible diving play. Laying out that 36-year-old body, preserving the no-hitter through six. Stottlemyre, pitching well himself, strikes out Clark to end the bottom of the sixth and strands a runner at third. Now to the top of the seventh, one out. The no-hitter is still intact. George Bell pops one up to shallow right field, and it's trouble. Julio Franco going back on a ball that is clearly struggling with his fucked-up knee. Doesn't make the play. It's scored an error, despite it being a pretty difficult play. Right. No-hitter intact. Giving the squinty eyes to Mm. that one. The next batter, Fred McGriff, gets gets hit in the head with a Bales curveball. He's big mad, but Bales apologizes and everything seems to be fine. Runners on first and second with two out. The no-hitter is still going, despite the fact that Blue Jays are very clearly threatening. Finally, Kelly Gruber singles to right field, firmly ending the no-hitter. Bell scores while Gruber and McGriff advance on the throw home. The lead is cut to 3-1. The two runners are in scoring position with two out. The next batter, Cecil Fielder. 
Singles sharply to left, and Mel Hall misplays it, and it rolls past him all the way to the warning track. McGriff and Gruber both score. Fielder ends up at third base, completely out of breath. Game is tied at three. In the bottom of the inning, Stottlemyre responds by setting down Cleveland in order. Then Bales works his way around trouble in the top of the eighth to keep the game tied. Bottom of the eighth, the legend, David Boomer Wells, is in to pitch for the Toronto Blue Jays. David Boomer Wells, one of my favorite players of all time. He's in to pitch and retires the Clevelands in order, striking out Jacoby to end the inning. Bales comes back out for the ninth. What's he doing? Why is he still out there? It's fine, though. He sets down the Jays in order. Everything is totally fine. It's still 3-3. I don't know how that happened. I don't know how he was still not giving up hits. After a, and, the, and then the bottom of the ninth, after a Camelo, Carmelo Castillo pinch hit single to lead off the inning, Wells serves one up to the no-good, downright awful cheat of a man, Corey Snyder, <laughs> who parks one over the left field fence for a two-run walk-off home run. Cleveland wins! Cleveland wins. It's 5-3. And, of course, they went on to win the AL, the AL East that year, and the AL pennant, and the World Series, just like Sports Illustrated predicted. Everything was fine for Cleveland. Don't look that up. Scott, how you doing over there? Uh, I'm doing great. Uh, the Cleveland team from 88 wasn't doing very good, though, at least after that game and for the rest of the season. That game, yeah. they did great, but after that, eh. Yeah, so after that game, Cleveland obviously was still in second place. Actually, they might have been, yeah, they would have been within half a game, I think, of New York. I think New York lost that day. They were within half a game of New York for first place, and the Blue Jays were still in sixth. And by the end of the season, those two teams would flip spots. Blue Jays finished second in the division, and Cleveland finished in sixth. So, mm. you know, Cleveland going to Cleveland. So but they were good. They looked good that yeah, year. Yeah, so looking at, because um, I've got their B-Ref page pulled up here, looking at their schedule and results, it looks like they started really hot. Like, they started off 11-2. and Oh, I meant to look this up. How many games did they have against the Baltimore Orioles in that early part of the season? Oh, you know what? Was, was, this the year, was this the year that Baltimore started 0-20? <laughs> oh, you're right. It was 0-21, my friend. And 1-23 for what they it had a, They had a four-game series against Baltimore. They had a four-game yeah, well, series against them and obviously swept them. There you go. Yeah. That helps. Oh, wait. Hang on. Did they have wait, two series against them? They had them? two series against Baltimore. <laughs> they had two series against them. They had a three-game series and a four-game series and swept them in both. So you take away those seven wins and they're 28 and 21. It's still good, but uh, yeah, I don't know, man. Yeah. That Baltimore, man. And it's funny because Baltimore lost 107 games that year, mm-hmm. which is a lot of games. But when you consider that they started off one in 23, that's actually pretty impressive. Like, so dude. didn't they, um, didn't Grant Brisby do like an oral history of that Orioles team? He did, yeah. I a remember. Lot of people have, but Grant Brisby did a particularly good one. Yeah, I remember reading that and like, dying the whole time reading it it was i mean everything he writes is gold but that particular oh, yeah. piece was fantastically done yeah uh before we move away from that ball we'll come back to that baltimore team because i have a, a deep dive that i'm gonna get into in sure. a little bit but just before we leave it for right now rebuilds were different back then man yeah like they weren't really rebuilds or at least i mean i know there were probably there were definitely examples of it but like this team started 1-23, which is futility that has literally never been seen in the history of baseball. They uh, they lost 107 games. That team had Cal Ripken Jr. and Eddie Murray and, like, other good players on it. Like, they weren't, they weren't the 2013 Houston Astros or the 2018 Baltimore Orioles. Like, they had good right, major league yeah. players, very good Hall of Fame major league players on their team. They weren't rebuilding. They were just bad, yeah. which is what, kind of what happened back then, you know? 
yeah, they were bad, and it's even weirder when you consider that they had uh, Ripken and Murray and other players who were part of, what was it, their 83 team that won the World mm-hmm. Series? Like, yep. it, was was Ken Singleton still around at that time, or was he long gone by then? I feel like Ken Singleton was still around. He might not have been good by 87, but I let's think he's here, maybe still around. Let's see here. Ken Singleton. Oh, no, he retired in 84, so he was long okay. gone. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say, he was more of a 70s guy, an underrated 70s on-base guy. If he played today, he'd be a much bigger star than he was. Let's see here. They then. had... Okay, so they had Ripken. They had a uh, good old fuckface, Bill Ripken. <laughs> um, very, uh, Hall of Very Good Fred Lynn was on that team. Uh, older. That was, must have been, an, I was going to say, an older yeah, Fred Yeah, older, Lynn. still Fred productive, 122 OPS+, plus, although he only played in 87 games. Um... Let's see here. Who else was on that? Uh, Mickey Tettleton, who was a decent hitting catcher. He was on that team. Joe Orslack. I have no idea who that is, but he had a 113 OPS plus and 125 games played. So was Mike, was Mike Flanagan still on that team or is he on the Blue Jays by that point? I'm not seeing a Mike Flanagan on here. So he wasn't on there, but but the point is that, you know, when you look at teams that lose 107 games today are not in any way trying i don't get the impression that the baltimore team wasn't trying they may not have been like going for it you know like mm-hmm. capital g going for it but, yeah. but they but they weren't not trying if you have cal Ripken jr and eddie murray on your team you're not not trying <laughs> you know and and uh it just man one in 23 it's hard to do that well they that... they started they started zero and 21 they didn't win a game until their 22nd game and they didn't get better right away either. Like no. they eventually did start to win more games, but like they, like I remember just look even just before like looking at the, uh, looking at the the game by game, they were like four and twenty nine or something. It was just like really really. They bad. got this, all they, the way to let's see here five and thirty one, six yeah, and thirty three. They, uh, they, they were, were so they were thir- they were thirteen and forty two coming into this game, so they yeah. had won a few games by then, but. Uh, Yep. Yeah, no, it, it was a rough season for Baltimore that year. Yeah, and it's funny because that division, the AL East, was, like, not a great division that year. Like, Boston won it with 89 games, and I think there was, like, three or – there's only, like, three and a half games, I think, separating first from fifth. Like, all the teams were sort of bunched in that 85 to – 84 to 85, 89 win range, 85 to 89 win range. Uh, and of course, in the AL West is where you had uh, Oakland. I think won 104 games yeah, that year. They that were, was the first really of their uh, 100 win, or not? All, no, but I take that back. They weren't all 100 win, but they had three in a row that went to the World Series. Yeah. They had McGuire, Canseco, Dave Stewart, <clears throat> Ricky. Yeah, Ricky back. Yeah, Rick, Ricky spin. came back in '89, and then was their full season in '90. I think. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, those teams were loaded, though. Oh yeah, they were real good. I remember uh, 1990, Bob Welch. He won like 27 games or something, even though, <laughs> I mean, wins. Who cares about wins? Obviously, we know that. But uh, when you see 27 in the win category. Definitely uh, raises an eyebrow. Raises an eyebrow. It's a, both a good season from the pitcher and like an insanely good team. Yes. Yeah. But uh, yeah, we can move on from Baltimore. Maybe we'll do a game from 88 with Baltimore at some point. Who knows? But uh, they're not the subject of today. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, so I guess we can start. Do you want to – we'll just start with Cleveland. I don't have, like, as much to say about the Blue Jays as I thought I would. Um, This is, like I say, it's before I was, like, a really big fan. A lot of the big-name players in this team, like Mm -hmm. Barfield and Bell and 
and Mosby weren't really around by the time I was watching baseball. Like, they, it wasn't just that they weren't around on the Blue Jays. They just, like, weren't around. <laughs> you know, like, by 1991, so, they were largely... Yeah. Uh, Bell was still kicking around, but, mm-hmm. like, largely these those guys were out of the game or insignificant by that point. So I don't really have the connection to this team that I do to the, the 90s ones and the 2000s ones. So I've got... I've definitely got some stuff to say about the Cleveland team um, from yeah, this. It. So let's... We'll start there, I guess. So I want to start by saying I think this team might have had more ugly blonde mustaches than on any other baseball team that I can certainly remember in the modern era. Um, I mean, careful saying that about the 80s. We don't know. I, I mean, you're right. It's, it's possible. There could be more. But, yeah, there are some very, very hideous blonde mustaches on this team. Uh, none of the least belong to uh, the hero of the game, Corey Snyder. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I actually I have a a funny uh, a bit of a story about Corey Snyder actually, so All right, let's hear it. So this team, uh, Snyder and Carter and Julio Franco, Brooke Jacoby, um, they were all kind of part of this uh, you know hitting core that Cleveland had brought in of younger players, and they you know they thought were going to be good and were going to finally you know oh they're going to break the curse you know be the first good Cleveland team in thirty years. And what ended up happening is that core just never really produced as much as they thought they were going to. Infamously, the year before in 87, they were predicted to go to the World Series by Sports Illustrated. And I do own that issue of Sports Illustrated. Uh, Infamously. Yes. Infamously with the early Sports Illustrated years Mm -hmm. in 1987. Yep. And what ended up happening, uh, so that team actually had a decent offense, had a decent lineup. Uh, Snyder, Carter... And Jacoby all had uh, 30 homer seasons. Jacoby, in particular, I think was pretty good that year. He had like a five or six win season, which is nothing to sneeze at for a third baseman. He, he had um, a long, long career as a yeah. hitting coach too. Brooke yeah, Jacoby. no, is, is he still a hitting coach? He, he might have might retired. Be. Recently, I'm not sure, right? but yeah, that that tracks though. But yeah, so that team had a decent offensive core, but they just had no pitching whatsoever. Um, they were running out the sullen husks of end of career Phil Necro and Steve Carlton who were both well into their 40s at that point. Uh, Necro was almost pushing 50 by that point, which is insane to even think about today. Yeah, knuckleballs. But, uh, yeah, no, so going back to Corey Snyder specifically, um, so what I think what people saw in him, if you look at his early career numbers, um, he was hitting a lot of home runs, like not a crazy amount by today's standards, but by mid to late 80s standards, what would seem like a lot. Uh, his yeah. rookie year in 86, he hit 24. 87, he hit 33. Now, mind you, that, that was, was the rabbit ball year. Yeah, that was still, the rabbit ball year, but still still good. Um, yeah. And he was originally a, I think he he spent some some time at both shortstop and, no, I'm sorry, I take that back. He was, it looks like his rookie year, they played him a lot at shortstop. And then after that, they converted him to outfield. Up. Yeah, so he was, you know, the power hitting shortstop. That's obviously an interesting and good profile to build around. Well, unfortunately, he just he kind of petered out. The hitting really wasn't there, frankly, because if you look at his numbers, it was all slug with empty on base. Right, um, which it, was like '80s good, right? That yeah, like thought was good, and then people like, why aren't they good? Yeah, and Joe exactly. Carter's that too, right? I mean, and... well, Joe Carter was a. I mean, if anything, Snyder was, was Joe very, Carter light. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. He was. It was not anywhere near as good as Joe Carter. But what's what's funny about Snyder? Um, what I think perfectly captures his player profile. 
Um, I actually played through the 87 season one year in an out-of-the-park file um, with the goal that I was going to actually try and get them to the World Series that year. Um, and part of what happened in that season, uh, I had Corey Snyder on that team, and I think I had him at second base for some reason. Oh. I don't know why. Gosh. So he ended up, <laughs> he played a full season at second base and hit like in the mid I don't know, he had like a 240, 250 average with like a 290 on base, but he hit over yeah. 40 home runs, and he ended up being worth like maybe two war. It might have been less than that, but it, it just, it that fake season perfectly encapsulates his entire player profile, which is why I share it. You know, he was like a, I guess a two true outcome player. He struck out a lot, hit a lot of home runs, didn't do much else. Yeah, and like, so he was... So like obviously I was too young to remember this, but I remember reading. I used to get uh, Baseball America back in the day. I used to get it subscribed to me, and every once in a while they would reprint stories from earlier issues of Baseball America, right? And some of them were famous uh, about famous prospects, and other ones were just like random. Like here's this random article we wrote about Corey Snyder, and I remember reading this article that was from the, I think it was 1985 because he was drafted in 1984 like the fourth overall pick at a BYU. And um, he he was sort of like one of the first prospects. You know, like prospects weren't really a thing until the 2000s for the most part. But in the, in the 80s, every once in a while, you'd have a guy who would be so good in the minor leagues that people would be talking about him. Like Ken Griffey Jr. was sort of like a really big example of that. Corey Snyder was like one of the first examples of that, where it was like his numbers in the minor leagues and, and the way he was hitting the ball and the way scouts were talking about him, they're like, oh my God, this power hitting shortstop, Corey Snyder, he's going to be a game changer for Cleveland. This is amazing. And uh, I remember reading that article in, in Baseball America and uh, I wish I could find it. I, I did try to find it actually before we started recording because I wanted to read from it. But uh, you, you yeah, know what? it was... It's, so it's interesting. I'm looking at his minor league stats now. They're okay, but like it's not like... And I don't know, again, maybe this has to do with the era and what was considered good at the time. He had 139 games at AA in 85 and 49 games at AAA in 86. With a 281, 336, 498 slash line that first year, and then a 302, 357, 542 slash line the second year. I so mean, yeah, that's, I, that's I, pretty phenomenal, I think, for the 80s as yeah, well. Yeah, I guess by that era standards, like yeah, they're only looking at batting average, home runs, and RBIs. That first year, he had... 28 home runs, 94 driven in. The second year, uh, nine home runs and 32 driven in and 49 games. So yeah, I guess right. by if you're looking as at, a shortstop, yeah, right, who they I, who they thought was like he may not stick at the position, but there was like, and this the the point of this article was basically saying that like this is the next Cal Ripken Jr. Yeah. This is the next like premier power hitting shortstop, the new breed of shortstop, well, and he you know, like so he was on that SI cover. It was him and Joe Carter that mm-hmm. they used for that cover. So yeah, I guess you're right. He would have, you know, they were excited for him and what he could potentially do. Yeah, and then it just never I mean, you know, now we would look at that guy coming up to the minor leagues and we go, well, he doesn't have the defense to stick it short. He's probably a corner outfielder or a first baseman and he's a no OBP power guy. If he doesn't learn to cut the strikeouts and bring up the walks, he's going to be meh. Which is exactly what he was. He was okay. Yeah. He wasn't a bad player, but he also had a short career, I believe, too. He was kind of out of baseball by the 90s, was he not? He was done by 94, and it looks like yeah. by then he was a part-time player at best. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I don't really remember him in the 90s. Like I remember, I know that 
the legend of Corey Snyder kind of lived on, right, as a, as a bust of a prospect. But I don't remember really seeing him play or caring about yeah, him as a no, player. Yeah, no, he was he was a, he was a nothing burger. Bounced around too. Stuck. Ended up he was with Cleveland for five years. Then it looks like uh, he went to Chicago. He was he was with the Jays in '91. Actually, that's interesting. Hmm. He he only played in 21 games that. that year though, <laughs> so you wouldn't have really seen him play that much probably. Um, and then he went to the Giants and then the Dodgers. So yeah, he went basically fucked off I to do, the West Coast. I do vaguely remember him on the Giants and Dodgers. Like I might have had baseball cards with him on them yeah. in the Giants and Dodgers. I feel like that that is something that I remember, but. Yeah, no, that that hit more of a memory thing than the Blue Jays. I don't remember him being on the Blue Jays at all. So, yeah, there was no back then too. If there was no card of him on the team, mm -hmm. I might not have known. Right, no, that makes sense. All right, so a couple more. I was watching. I was not like I was watching Giants games in in Canada. Sure, yeah, you wouldn't have had any reason (laughs) to do that. So, a couple more things I want to touch on with Cleveland. So, I want to mention uh, Julio Franco just because he was in this game and you know was important in this game. So a couple things about him. For starters, he is actually one of my dad's favorite players ever. Um, And I think it is because he played for so long and played until he was so old. He was like Um, 49. Was he 48, 49? Still still pinch hitting in the majors? The other thing, too, like even when he was young, he always looked old. Like, yeah. so like, like I this, said, he's the perpetual 45-year-old. Because in this game, he would have been 29. <laughs> so, oh, God cr- damn it. He was 29 and he, <laughs> the dude played till like 2010. What yeah. the fuck? Good Lord. At least it feels like he did. It feels yeah. like he played until kind of yeah. recently. No, so he was he was 29 uh, in this game. Um, and He went uh, to Japan and shit. Like, he was yeah, no, I, I want to do a really brief overview of his whole career because it's, it's fucking yeah, wild. It. Um, so if you look at his full career, uh, if you look at, so I want to look at every year he played, uh, outside of his minors career. So, uh, he originally was with, uh, the Phillies. It looks like he played 16 games with the Phillies in 1982, then came over to Cleveland and was there for, uh, quite pretty much the rest of his twenties, then went over to Texas and was kind of part of that burgeoning core that they had in the early 90s. Then he ended up with Chicago, and uh, in 94 he was with Chicago. So then after that, in 95, because he didn't know what was going to go on with the strike, he went over to Japan and played in NPB with the Chiba Lotte Marines. Um, Was actually very good with Chicago that year, too. Huh. Interesting. So a lot, of, a lot of players did kind of do that though, yeah. especially older guys. Like they didn't know if they were going to play at all. Right? Five, no, so they yeah, and, they yeah. just went somewhere else. So he went over yeah. to he played for the Marines that year. Um, then in '96, he came back to uh, MLB and came back to Cleveland. Um, mm-hmm. And I believe Franco, because I'm not a hundred percent sure. What game was the first game I went to? I know one of the first games I went to was on September 10th in 1996, uh, where Cleveland played the Angels. And Julio Franco was... He was either the first baseman or the DH in that game. I think he was the first baseman, because I think Kevin Seitzer was DH And by that time, he would have been in his late 30s. Like, this is not a young man at this point. Yeah, he was 37 in 1996. (laughs) Yeah. Like... Yep. So... He then he was with Cleveland, then uh, was traded to Milwaukee in 1997, mm-hmm. and he then was re- he was released actually by Cleveland. Oh, I'm looking yeah. at his transaction. No, page. you're he was right. Released by Cleveland outright, and then 
uh, signed a deal with the the Brewers. So on, he on then, August thirteenth, ninety seven. And then in ninety eight, he went back to the Chiba Lotte Marines in Japan. Had a decent season mm-hmm. there. Then he played for the the Rays. It looks mm-hmm. like in ninety nine, he played one game for the Rays that year. Uh, spent mm-hmm. most of the year in the minors. It looks like playing for he spent, the he spent Mexico most of the City year. Tigers. Yeah, I was going to say he spent most of the year in the Mexican League yeah. in 99-2000. And then yeah. in 2000, he played in the KBO uh, for mm-hmm. the... I need to look up the team because I don't know. The Samsung Lions, it looks like. Okay. Yeah. Um, still still a, a strong, proud team today, yeah, from what I understand. They are. The KBO. And then he played in the Mexican League again in 2001. Then went over to Atlanta. And by this point, he's 42. Stays with Atlanta for the next five <laughs> years. As as like just a pinch hitter, basically. This is when you could still well, have. But he was still just getting a into hitter. a ton of games. Played in one twenty five, one hundred three, one twenty five, one hundred eight in four consecutive years. Then in two thousand six, played with the Mets. Two thousand seven was with the Mets and with Atlanta. In two thousand eight, was with the Mexican League again. And then in twenty fourteen, out of nowhere, as a fifty five year old, he plays seven games for an independent league. Um. <laughs> So when it was all said and done, if you add up all of his professional seasons, both uh, majors, uh, foreign, and independent uh, level seasons, he is one of three players to have 4,000 career hits. Uh, the others oh, wow. being uh, Pete Rose. Right, you know, I'm sorry, yeah. I take that back. One of four, uh, four players that have 4,000 career hits. So Pete Rose, yeah. Ty Cobb, and the one true hit king, which I'm sure will piss a lot of people's off, but eat my heart off, Ichiro. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Julio Franco, like, just one of a kind, man. Yes. One of a kind. One career. of one. And just, like, like, I mean, you look at some of these Atlanta and New York years in his later career, and it's, like, you know, 223 plate appearances in 103 games. Uh, you know, with New York in, in 2006, 95 games, 179 plate appearances. Like, he's not... He's starting occasionally, but mostly he's coming in in the sixth Well, the other thing uh, with Julio Franco, too, is he's a guy who um, people would, you know, the I'm sure you've heard the um, the phrase, you know, he can roll out of bed and hit 300. I think Franco falls into that category, honestly. Like, he just, he was a really good contact hitter. hitter. Yeah. Um, and, like, the 2004 season at 45 years old. Yeah, he hits 309. 309. That's 378, impressive as hell. 441. Yeah, that's a really that's good a... flash line for a 45-year-old. That's crazy. He had nine home runs as a 46-year-old. That yeah, like, that's so bananas. Like, yeah, you know, steroid era, whatever. Who knows what he was doing to keep himself on the field at that sure. point in his career. But, like, who cares? Yeah, like, no, Who it's, cares it's if he was really riding himself up every yeah. fucking day? He's a 48-year-old playing in the major leagues at a not terrible level like not embarrassing himself at 48 so, years old that's like that's bonkers yeah so one more thing i want to bring up about franco before we move on um he also has one of the wonkiest and one of my favorite batting stances oh, yeah. of all time Classic batting stance yeah. guy uh yeah no so it's actually funny um i don't know if you've seen this before the like three minute espn feature they did on on batting stance guy the twitter guy who mm-hmm. would mimic yeah, batting yeah. stances like 10 years ago i think they did this more yeah, than that now, it's maybe like a, a big thing yeah. on baseball Twitter and so the early teens. They, yeah, they did a they did a video on him, and it's funny in the video they talk about Julio Franco, and like they're talking about how his stance is so crazy and goofy, and it's really funny because there's a part in the video where he's talking about how uh, crazy. Um, who is it that I'm thinking of? 
uh, Tony Batista. Uh, you, oh, I'm sure you yeah, remember yeah. who that is. He talks oh, about. So Julio, <laughs> we'll, we'll watch it. We'll watch yeah. Tony Batista game. Tony Batista. Yeah. Game so Julio point. Franco, who is one of the goofiest batting stances ever, in that video, talks about how he thinks uh, Tony Batista's batting stance is even more crazy. Which, in fairness to Franco, it was. It was. It absolutely was. <laughs> yeah. But it's just it's it's very funny to hear him talk about a guy who has a crazy batting stance. Um, yeah, for those and, who don't, for those who don't know, yeah. which I'm sure everyone remembers Tony mm-hmm. Batista because he wasn't a very good player for very long, but uh, he had a couple of good years at the Blue Jays. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he like complete open stance. I don't mean just like an open stance. He was facing the pitcher. Yeah, his no, whole he body would start facing out, the pitcher, like holding out. his bat in front of him, like it was a lightsaber or a samurai katana. And then, and then he never really brought his feet back in. Yeah, until he, he would just he like swinging. rotate his waist while keeping yeah. his feet standing straight out, and then would just like his swing was all. Excuse me, all torque, which is probably why it's, he was only good for a couple of years, frankly. But yeah, well, just like it was bananas. amazing that he was good with that to begin yeah. with. I mean, he didn't he didn't do that as a young player. He mm-hmm. did that when he struggled. He started trying shit out, and it just worked a couple times. Yeah. And he just kept doing it for a little while, and by the end of his career, he had stopped doing it to such an insane degree again. But um, yeah, just a that's a weird, weird one. I was just watching a, a game from that channel. From uh, this is where you find baseball. Our wonderful youtube channel that we get all these games from i was watching a game with with actually it was cleveland and toronto in, were you watching uh, 2000 the, yeah the last game the, of the 2000 the, uh, season the david david boomer wells on yes, that one too yep, i watched <laughs> i ended up watching that game too we should do that one another yeah. time later yeah and 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 obviously when we get to the blue jays most of my blue jays talk is about david wells which will not surprise anyone uh <laughs> but uh, uh do you have, yeah. The, anything else you wanted to note from that Cleveland team before I, I got a couple Cleveland notes too? Sure. So the only other thing I wanted to mention was that Ron Washington was in this game. Yeah. Um, yeah. Who, as I mentioned in the highlight, yeah. package, who like made a great play, but should not have been playing shortstop, and it no, was very and obvious. That in this was game. one of the things I noticed about this game. The fielding overall was just really bad. Like, like both in the errors way of saying fielding is bad but just like the way it looks and how it 80s like, baseball man yeah it was like, like that it was a mess because like wash had a couple of like really just like gimpy throws and i mean yeah. he was like he a 36 year old yeah he was a 36 year old who was balding playing shortstop like he should <laughs> yeah. not right washington also someone else who has always appeared old to me um, and, he, and he looks the same age. He looks the he same, looks the age, same age as he does now. He just has like a a ha- half an afro at this point in time. What a, what a goddamn yeah. gem, Ron Wall. Could we just for a second appreciate the wonderful human being love that Wash. Ron Washington is? Like just one of my all-time favorite managers of mm. all time. Like I didn't know him as a player. Uh, I was really shocked to see him in the lineup in this. I was like, what the fuck, yeah. Ron Washington? Like, really? Uh, but he's still coaching. He's still is he still the third base coach with Atlanta? Is that still a thing? Yes, because he because they were making a big deal when Atlanta won the series two years ago. He got a ring because he was still with Atlanta, and people made a really yeah. big deal about that because he he basically been ring chasing, uh, you know, his whole managerial career, frankly, and came yeah. and really, should, really and should have should have got one oh, in yeah. twenty eleven. No, but he he was managing that, the yeah. Texas Rangers. Who oh were, yeah, that fuck, team I mean, should have won, but. Fuck the Texas Rangers. I'm glad they lost. But not for Ron Washington. Right, two no. people on that team, two people on that team didn't deserve being Ron Washington that franchise. and Adrian Beltre. Absolutely. Yes. Those are the two. Mm-hmm. Um, but Ron Washington is like, just also like, just mo- as a Moneyball character. Like, I mean, I don't like that movie. It's extremely difficult. 
But it's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's easy, right, Wash? It's extremely difficult. Just like, just such a great. Yeah. And like, they kind of painted Ron Washington as like a reluctant Moneyball guy, which I think that's exactly what he is. I think he's like, he's an old school guy, but yeah, that tracks. Kind of come around on some of the things, and he's you know begrudgingly is like, okay, fine. He also, as a infield coach, is just a legend. Apparently, yes, like just he, in sort of in terms of teaching, like in how to like he's like made. I can't think of any names off the top of my head, but he's made the careers. The the one the on one the recent one that I know he had a huge effect on is he he basically turned Marcus Semien into a viable major league yeah shortstop. Yeah, like exactly, he yeah. like he went from being well 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 below average to a legit Gold Glover. Like it's actually really impressive what he did for Semien. Yeah. But yeah, anyway, yeah, sure. uh, I'll hand it over to you uh, to talk about the Jays for a sec, uh, or more well, than a sec, I, I should uh, say. Before, before we do that, I, got, I do have some Cleveland shit. I have way more Cleveland stuff than I do Blue Jays okay. stuff, which is, I just it. found the roster more interesting. I don't know. So first, first, there's a couple things. I want to talk about the general manager of Cleveland in this year, and I also want to talk about attendance, and we'll get to both of those things. Yes. So uh, Henry Peters was the general manager of Cleveland this yes, year. Yes, Henry year. Peters. Hank Peters, yeah. So he was so, he, he was the architect of the of the nineties teams. So yes, this so was let, like let me let me let me get to it. Yes, yes, yes. Let me get to it. So he was at this point is this was late career Hank Peters. This is his last job with, with in Major League Baseball. He he was the uh this was his first year. He came over from Baltimore. He was fired by Baltimore, interestingly, uh after the eighty seven season and of course in the eighty eight team that he helped build uh was we mentioned is terrible. So he was hired a month after being fired by the Orioles sort of a legendary guy like he came up through the the kansas city a's system as a, as an executive he actually like helped steer the minor leagues through like a really terrible crisis time partially with the cleveland organization and and sort of overseeing some minor league operations things in in the 70s he he was then the orioles general manager from uh, 1976 to 1987 they won the 83 world series he built that team he's credited with signing in and or trading for, or he's, he's credited with signing or drafting uh, Cal Ripken Jr. and Eddie Murray and Dennis Martinez, among others. Then he's hired by Cleveland, and like you said, he's sort of the forgotten architect of those 90s teams. Like, firstly and foremost, he brought over John Hart from Baltimore. Like, mm-hmm. John Hart doesn't end up with Cleveland if it's not for right. Peters bringing him over. Right. Yeah, and drafting and signing guys like Jim Tomei, Manny Ramirez, Charles Nagy, trading for Sandy Alomar Jr. and Carlos Baerga. Mm-hmm. He's he's like a... John Hart deserves all the credit in the world. Excellent executive. Did a great job with uh, with Cleveland in the 90s. Hank Peters was was his mentor. Yes. He's the guy who yep. like brought John Hart into the game. And and I don't... like You don't hear about Hank Peters the way you hear about John Hart, you know, who's still in the game, who's still tangentially in the game, is still a big part of it. So yeah, that's Hank Peters. Yeah. No, so then uh, I want to get to the mistake on the lake. But Muni Stadium, like I, ne- I was never there. I never took in a game at Municipal Stadium. Of course, featured heavily in in the major league films as being a, just a truly trash stadium. Well, and the uh, funny part is a lot of the on field scenes weren't filmed at like they had they had like exterior shots, and I think a couple of the interior shots where the stadium was empty was actually from the park. But a lot of those on field shots were filmed in Milwaukee. Or Bob Euchre was. Yeah, that's, yep. why they, that's uh, exactly they that. why. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so interestingly enough, the the listed attendance for this game was twenty one thousand. The announcers at one time said something along the lines of, "Oh, this is a not a bad crowd for Cleveland at thirteen to fifteen thousand, which is probably more like the number that was there." But I just want to do I want to do something here. I'm going to read you the attendance <laughs> in terms of its placement in the American League out of fourteen teams 
uh, or 15 at the last part of this, between 1981 and 2002. You ready? Go for it. So you got 1981, 12th, 1982, 13th, 84, 14th, 84, 14th, 85, 14th, 86, 9th, 87, 14th, 88, Something happens to attendance. 1993, 7th. 1994, 4th. 1995, 1996, It was 455, and they actually, that number's been retired for the fans. Like, that's that's a retired number. That's that, like, impressive. Yeah. It's, it's impressive, but it's, this is part of where my frustration comes in, because then people go, oh, well, why'd it fall off, or why can't they do that now? And a lot of it, it's going to sound dumb, but I tell you, there's something to it. It's because of the goddamn Browns. It really is. Because... Part of why that, I mean, a, a big piece of it, obviously, those 90s teams were fantastic. They were excellent baseball teams with a multitude of Hall of Famers who played well and did had well teams and were fun then. to watch. And they have, but the attendance yeah. has never come back like that. Like, go look at go look at the attendance figures in 2016 and 2017 when they went to the World Series and when they had their insane 22-game win streak. Like if, if you, you want me to go do that right if, now, if you want to go for it, because uh, I'm I'm going to go off on a bit of a rant here. So they part of why those '90s teams that preceded those teams did as well as they did is because the Cavs were a non-entity at that time, and the Browns did not exist because they got moved because Art Modell's a shit bag. Like the the baseball team was the only game in town. And they were historically good, so everyone went to see them. Then, mm-hmm. Browns come back in 98. Cleveland kind of, that core dies out in 2001, 2002. And the attendance has never come back, partially because of frustration with the Dolan spending, partially because of, you know, the different competitive cycles they've gone through. Because really, outside of that, you know, they, they were good or at least competitive in the mid-aughts. But they never hit the same kind of heights that they did in the 90s. And I would argue that the period they've had since Terry Francona showed up has been their best run in franchise history outside of the 50s. Um, But no one will admit that because people are so stuck on those 90s teams for, for good reason. But the attendance has never come back. And it's because people are so hesitant to support the baseball team because of ownership. Meanwhile, if you go to the other part of the city where the Browns are at, and you look at the Browns attendance numbers, they're always like top of the league in attendance because this broken fucking city can't quit the Browns. They're an abortion of a franchise that openly defecates on a football field on a (laughs) weekly basis. And it just... And, like, I get it. Like, I... 
I, I had a streak that I went through. The I followed the Browns pretty closely during the Baker Mayfield years. I had a blast with it. But, like, people just can't get over this horribly cursed football team, and the baseball team suffers for it, and it drives me bananas. It just... I, I, I can't I wanna, deal with I it. I want to agree with you, and maybe I do. I don't know. I don't know what the fuck's going on there. But also, I think a couple things. There's like, you know, eight home games versus 82. That, that's that's sure. 81. And that's there's, part of it. There's, there's absolutely other factors that go into it. Like, that's I, not I, the I only think the biggest factor why. is television, too, right? Television has become such that you can watch every game in high definition. I think that attendance numbers in raw numbers across the league, I don't know if they're up or down, but it gets. I get the impression that certain... This is this is not to agree with our boy Joe Sheehan, who we talked about last time, but certain markets, I think, really are affected by television. So I think oh, Cleveland's probably one of those. Right? I, and Cleveland, like, Cleveland usually does very well in TV rankings. Right. I, I don't imagine yeah. that. And this mm-hmm. is this is where, like, I'm sure that the Dolans can point to, by the way, 2016, they were 13th, and 2017, they were 11th out of 15 American League teams. Yeah, so, yeah there uh, you go. Good. Yeah, there you but go. But also, Brown sold but out also, in 2017 I, when they went 0 and 16. That's yeah. yeah. Anyway, but but I mean, I think that like you know the the Dolans play a part. Uh, people being frustrated with they the, the, had these amazing teams in the mid teens and could have done more with them. Could have kept yep. that core around longer. Yep. Maybe could have mm-hmm. maybe could have won a World Series, but then just sort of yeah, gave up on it or didn't give up on it, but just didn't spend money to supplement the incredible core they built. And, you know, in some cases, like Lindor trading it away. But yeah, I mean, it, it's it's interesting because like attendance doesn't tell you everything. In fact, attendance doesn't tell you a lot. And, and owners will point to it sometimes and go, look, our attendance is bad. That's why we can't spend money. And I'm sure the Dolans do that constantly. But it's like the same thing in Tampa Bay. Tampa Bay routinely has some of the best TV numbers in baseball. They just, it's hard to get to their stadium. Yep. So no one goes, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm, like, and I'm not saying that Cleveland's hard to get to, but it's it's a suburbanized, hollowed out. Rust Belt City. Yep. We talked about that when it comes to the sort of racism of that. Uh, and that means people aren't really willing to drive all the way into the city sure. to see the team. Right? And it's harder for them to draw the kind of numbers they might have been in the 90s when, when you know, the core of the city was a little, uh, had a lot more people in it. Yes. At the very least. So I'm sure there's a lot, there's a lot of con- <laughs> colluding factors. Oh, yeah. There no, there is. It's, it's not just the Browns, but my bitter inner Clevelander wants to blame the Browns. Yeah. Anyway, it's just um, funny that they went they went from being like worst drawing team in the eighties to, to being the best in the nineties to back to the worst yep, in the two thousands. Yeah. It's just very. Interesting I will say at least trajectory. At least they're good now. They they still don't draw, but at least they're interesting and fun to watch. I'd rather have yeah. that than you know what my dad had to put up with for thirty years. But anyway, um, yeah. I think you were was there uh, were there any other points you had to make about the the old Muni Park or mistake on the lake? No. Uh, the only other thing that I wanted to say about Cleveland in general, um, I do have I do have a trivia question which we'll get to later. Yes, and I have one for you questions. as well. Uh, but but just uh, Jay Bell was on this Cleveland yeah, team. He was. Injured. he was injured. I had like listen. I have a pretty depth. Of, I have good depth of knowledge of of baseball, and I like to consider myself someone who knows who has played where in their career. And you know, mm-hmm. Jay Bell was a a very good you know, good shortstop in the nineties with the Pittsburgh Pirates. Did had some good teams too. Ton in the early of steroids 90s. when he went to Arizona. Yeah, sure. He, he was a good player. Uh, <laughs> played for a long time, and uh, I had no idea that he was ever on Cleveland. I had no clue. I was like, "Wait a minute, Jay Bell's injured." That's why Ron Washington is starting his shortstop. I was yeah. like, "What the hell?" Like, <laughs> I want to say that I remember seeing that somewhere because I, I I think when I played um, that '87 season in Out of the Park, I'm pretty sure I had Jay Bell as my sh- starting shortstop for that. 
I would have been, yeah. So I I think I had known that but forgot about it. But yeah, just really weird that he was with Cleveland because I think he went to did he go to Pittsburgh after this? Yeah, he was uh, in Pitt- Pittsburgh for the majority of his sort of prime. I know he had a couple of good years. Now yeah, now, and then he went he, to Arizona, kind of more towards the end. I just I remember him being. He in was the, on those like early '90s Pirates teams. Yeah, that were really yeah, good. he was part of he the was a big part of that. Yeah, he was part of those teams because I, I remember him being on uh, like the first good Diamondbacks team, and I remember him being in the starting lineup for the '99 All Star Game in Boston. So the only other thing I was going to say was just about Old Muni Park. So I never had the. I guess fortune or misfortune, I think as most people would say, to have gone to Old Muni Park. Um, obviously, that was where my both my grandma and my dad like grew up going to go to baseball games. Um, because no one was there, it was really easy to get tickets to go, and it was really cheap uh, from what I've been told. I might have mentioned this in the first episode. My grandma had told me at some point that bleacher seats in 1948 when they won the World Series were like 36 cents. And I don't think they were that much more expensive, you know, 30, 40 years after that. The, uh, they were paying you to show up at Municipal yeah. Stadium in the 80s. <laughs> well, and the, yeah, well, and the other thing, too, that's so crazy is it was a massive park. Like, it was huge. And it was rarely ever full, like, or getting even close to it. So it just looked like this cavernous pit. Yeah. Like, even if, when there was a decent crowd, it looked empty. So if you want to actually <laughs> see a good or get an idea of what it looked like when it was full if you look up the 81 all-star game so that was in cleveland at muni park and it set an attendance record i think there there were like eighty thousand people there or like the number is like stupid like you know like the biggest ballparks these days are like you know max capacity half that size but it's not uh, even smaller than that yeah. yeah yeah that that's that's the only time i've ever seen it full on film was for that 81 all-star game because yeah if you like a lot of the like a lot of my favorite players growing up like you know jim tomey or bayerga or lofton or whomever if you look up early career highlights of them they're just playing in these you know cavernous empty stadiums and it's all at old muni park so um i love david wells he, he was on the on the yankees in the 90s and obviously you know nobody likes the yankees we get it um, I still love David Wells. I loved his entire sort of demeanor and character because he was just a ridiculous asshole. It was amazing. And, like, you know, he's this rotund guy with tattoos and a goatee. Looks like he belongs in the Hells Angels and could, like, really fuck you up if you tried to uh, fuck with him. Just a weird pitcher. Had a weird career, weird trajectory, which we don't need to get into because I, I am I am gung-ho about doing uh, his perfect game on this podcast. So we will have more time in the future of this podcast to talk about David Wells. But... Just his, I just want to talk about while he's with the Blue Jays. This was his, I'm not sure if it was his rookie season, but it was pretty close. It was right at the beginning of his career. He had a full head of hair in this game. I've never seen David Wells with hair on his head before. Yeah. (laughs) Fucking killer mullet and a mustache. Mm -hmm. Real real good shit. He, uh, in his early career, he was, uh, you know, kind of an up and down guy, pitched out of the bullpen. A lot of promise, but never really lived up to it. And he bounced around in the mid 90s with uh, Cincinnati and Detroit and Baltimore and then ended up in New York and then in his, in his 30s and, like, became good. But, uh, you know, and then he threw the perfect game in 99, came back to the Blue Jays, or 98, sorry, and came back to the Blue Jays in 99, and then he bounced around later in his career again. He pitched for a long time. Well, he and David Cohn were, like, the aces of that 98 Yankees team. Yeah, yeah he was he was real good. Yeah. And, um, but he had beef with the Blue Jays and Blue Jays fans over the years, and it's, it's funny because now when he talks about it, 
he's he says you know he actually did in retrospect kind of regrets sometimes how he treated Toronto fans and how he treated his time with the Blue Jays and really thought thought of them at the time as a second-rate franchise and really shouldn't have and he feels kind of bad about that now and it's it's interesting to hear him like talk about it with some time but man him and the Blue Jays just because he was kind of dicked around in the late 80s and early 90s uh maybe should have got more of a chance than he did with the Jays never really took off and then they kind of just DFA'd him at one point and that was kind of it and then you know they he didn't have a good time with the, with the Jays in the late 80s and early 90s. He was then traded back to the Blue Jays ahead of the 1999 season in the Roger Clemens deal. The Blue Jays traded Roger Clemens to the Yankees. They got David Wells in return. He said that in 2020, he was asked over Twitter what his worst day as a professional uh, baseball player was. And he said the day he got traded back to the Blue Jays. <laughs> <laughs> because like famously, too, David Wells was is like obsessed with Babe Ruth and obsessed with Yankees history. So he was like... He was a Yankee. He wanted to be a Yankee. That was the only team he ever cared about playing for. He So being traded away from the Yankees after his 1998 season, which was his best year to that point, and, you know, we threw a perfect game for the Yankees and, like, just a crazy, crazy story, and then gets traded to the Blue Jays, the team that he fucking hated playing for because they wouldn't give him a chance, and, like, he kind of got dicked around, and, like, you know, so he calls that the worst day of his professional career. And then uh, there's a couple other incidents, so... He was just continually beefing with fans and coaches in the front office just all the time, just constantly. And on August 9th, 1991, he, publi- he publicly feuded with Cito Gaston. He was taken out of a game, and he, like, visibly cusses out Gaston. There's a good video of it somewhere, but he uh, I'll see if I can find it. But he cusses out Gaston, and then as he's walking off the mound, he doesn't give the ball to Gaston. He just chucks it down the foul line and just walks off the field. Um, and uh, apparently him and Cito were, were friends then and are friends now, and... Uh, everything's good but it's just like some of the, sometimes like the Cito Gaston David Wells thing just seemed to boil over they had to be like separated in the clubhouse and yeah. shit and then on his way out the door in 2001 when he was uh traded again from the Blue Jays to the Chicago White Sox in a deal that is infamously bad for the Blue Jays and I'll get to that in just a second but on his way out the door in 2001 he said the front office wasn't doing enough to try to win which was kind of true they were kind of contending in 2000 and uh the, their biggest acquisition at the deadline was Davey Martinez <laughs> like he just wasn't he was sort of a journeyman outfielder who actually played for four teams that year and blue jay the you know blue jays fans were upset about it and it was a whole thing uh he also said on his way at the door that blue jays fans quote stink and they are terrible uh he has since walked that back said that he was unfair to them but just just an interesting relationship you would think that i would hate him but even at the time i couldn't bring myself to hate david wells <laughs> i just like just seeing a guy like that uniquely uh visually unique player and just like hearing the stories about him you know just being a fun loving guy going to rock concerts the night before his starts and like you know ended up at like a who concert and and then pitched the next day actually that was the 2000 game uh it just like just just a character um long weird good career and uh god love david god love david wells man boomer he's he's the motherfucker He's the straight motherfucker. But the trade that he sent them to Chicago in 2001 for Mike Soraka, Kevin Birney, and uh, Mike Williams and Brian Simmons, all of which were terrible. Mike Soraka uh, famously was kind of good with the White Sox and then was traded to the Blue Jays in the David Wells deal. Gord Ash, the general manager of the Blue Jays at the time, uh, did not uh, order a physical to uh, complete the trade. And it turns out Mike Soraka's arm was all fucked up and never pitched again. <laughs> so that was the, basically... 
they basically got nothing for David Wells because uh, Bierney, Mike Williams, and Brian Simmons didn't really turn out to be anything. Soraka was the centerpiece of that deal, and he didn't pitch a Is single game with the Blue Jays. Any relation between that Mike Soroka and the current Mike Soroka that pitches no, for the Braves? No, different spelling. Different spelling. Sor- uh, so Soraka. Okay. It's, Sor- it's Soraka not a T. and Soroka. Okay. Yeah. I'm an idiot. Never mind. Name. But yeah, no, it, uh, I always think of Mike Soraka when I see uh, Mike Soroka, though. So yeah, I always think I always think of Mike Soraka every time I see him. And it's, it's funny that they're both like injured all the time. But yeah, anyway, yeah. that was all I had. We'll, we will bring up David Wells in the future. That, that Like I said, that, that version of the Blue Jays team with like Barfield and Bell and Mosby and McGriff and Fernandez, like that was kind of uh, 1.0 Blue Jays, like mm-hmm. when they were good for the first time. Yeah. And like they were a good team, they just weren't good enough. And and you know Pat Gillick flipped the entire team basically, and uh, and built two World Series winners out of it. So it's it's an interesting like just before they got really good, they were good for a long time, and they were good that season. But they said they finished with 87 wins. I think they finished second or third in the East. So they they did have a good year. It just they just were never good enough really, except for 87 when they won 90. I think they won 96 games in, in 1987, and they didn't make the playoffs because the Tigers came back on them in the last week of the season. Or they something. had a hundred win Pythag that year. Holy cow. Yeah, they were good that year. So let's spin this into, we'll, we'll get the trivia at the end. I wanted to talk about one thing because we're, we're running low on time, but I wanted to make sure to touch on this because this is not this is kind of an important thing. There's, there's some issues of, of race in this game that I think are really important. We should talk about. Interestingly, if you look at the starting lineups, fully half of the position players um so for for the clevelands you have willie upshaw joe carter mel hall dave clark and ron washington for the blue jays you have jesse barfield lloyd mosby fred mcgriff and cecil fielder all are african-american black american players that's half of the starters and starting position players and this was sort of at the tail end of when uh black baseball and inner city baseball was was getting a lot of funding and support uh, through 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 various black uh, leadership groups and also through some government initiatives that that uh, that were doing that sort of thing, which is interesting in the Reagan years, but it came out of the '60s, mm-hmm. and uh, you know it had all this. It was great. Like I think at one point, I, I, this is the, the, what I wanted to look up before the before the podcast, and I couldn't find the numbers. But uh, at one point in the late '70s, something like 26 percent of Major League Baseball was Black American. Yeah, there and, were a lot. Uh, and now it's down to like three percent or something. Yeah, like it's, it's say, a horribly would, low yeah, number. You would not see this today. It's and, and people... yeah. And this, so this game was the interesting thing because it was just like it's like wow, there's a lot of black yeah. players in these teams. This is great. And then you think about that now and like what the hell has happened since then? And there are a lot of really great articles and books that have looked into this yes. issue and what's mm-hmm. happened to inner cities in the U.S. and how neoliberalism has just sort of hollowed out. Uh, a lot of a lot of ability for people to play. Also, that baseball has become an expensive middle class. Oh God, yeah. I, so I wouldn't even call city, it middle class. Kids don't it's, play it. Yeah, like it's it's a rich kid sport, frankly, because exactly. you have to buy all. Because like for basketball, you need a ball and you need a good pair of shoes. Football, you need a pair of cleats and that's it. Like they they you know cover the equipment and everything. Baseball, mm-hmm. you gotta have cleats. You gotta have gloves. You gotta have batting gloves. You gotta have jock strap. You gotta have this. Gotta have that. Like there's, and and you gotta now, have warm weather. Yeah, you gotta have you gotta have warm weather right. to go play there's, all year there's round. There's no such thing as indoor baseball, frankly. And you, yeah. and especially now with all the added tech, you know, like the the rap soto and like edratronic cameras and kind of stuff. Like as cool as that stuff is, that's just gonna push more people out of the game that can't afford yeah. it, frankly. And we could do we could do an entire side episode. Oh my on, gosh, yeah, we could on, talk on this for topic. Hours and, on this. and 
and I'm not, I don't know, I can't speak for you, but I'm not particularly qualified to have that conversation. I, I just think either. it's, I just think it's interesting to note that like, like that was the, one of the first things I noticed about this game is like, wow, there are a lot of black players in this game. That does not happen now. No. Like <laughs> it just does not happen. And that did not take long to change either. Yep. Uh, which I think is a really interesting uh, indictment of, of the sport and where it's headed, to be honest. And, and I think it's a big, a big, big problem right now. Uh, in the U.S. and it's not just it's not just black players, of course. Yeah. It's black, like black players, are a part of it. But uh, you know, it's 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 working class kids in general. Like you know, Stuart Hall said that uh, race is the modality in which class is lived, right? And what he meant by that was, uh, you know, when you look at a uh, you set up a bunch of people and you look at them, one of the quickest ways you can tell what class they're in is by what by what race they are, and that's why racism perpetuates under capitalism. And you know, you really. I think see that in in black players but it isn't just black players right it's also like any any sort of working class kids now who want to come up playing the game sure there's no the, the barriers to entry are just insane oh yeah no there's uh where i where i live currently uh it's pretty much all almost predominantly white in rural mountain town pennsylvania frankly and it's uh it, you know, none of these kids are going to be able to afford to play any, you know, level of baseball, let alone minor league or professional baseball. Yeah. Um, you have to be, you have to have enough money to have your, like to play all year round. If you're not playing all year round, you're not going to get on, yeah. on showcase circuits. You're you not, have you're to, not. You have to live in California or Florida and you have to come from or Georgia. Yeah. Or that's, Texas. yep. That's, that's pretty much what it's boiled down to now. And it's, it's and really yet. a shame because you're, you're losing out on a lot of potential players who could be, you know, you don't know how good that, you know, untapped talent of an inner city kid is you know you, you don't you don't know yeah. what a, you know what a kid could be or what a child can do at some point it you know with it's, the right coaching with the right you know motivation and tools in front of them it's you're, you're yeah. cutting off a huge talent pool and it's something that like andrew mccutcheon and uh adam, adam jones, jones yep both of them uh, and a few a few other yeah. players uh have brought up as like i'm the lucky one and this is a problem you know we have to address this issue and and I, I just I just wanted to bring that up as a way to talk about that because it just struck me as being like what a difference it is. Like you would talk about how baseball is different in 1988 versus today. That's a big one. Right. That's a really big one. And, you know, the, the players of color that we do have in baseball, largely coming from Latin America, where that their poverty is taken advantage of and exploited by Major League Baseball. Uh-huh. You basically uh, so, have, so uh, you know, I'm going to call it what I, you know, if, if it smells like a skunk, it's a skunk. Basically what equates to human trafficking. You have yeah. the peddling of literal children based on their baseball talent. And it's really gross. And Yeah, it's a completely fucked yeah, up and racist thing yeah, as well. It's It's yeah. bad. But anyway... Um, and the other thing on racism real quick was just Buck Martinez, the legacy that man, I mean, so he was, this, this was on TSN, obviously, mm -hmm. uh, broadcast the, the sports network is the, the Canadian, one of the Canadian, uh, sports networks here. Yes. And it was the big one in the eighties and nineties. And, um, Buck Martinez was the color commentator as he is today <laughs> with the Toronto Blue Jays. And, uh, and this was one of his first years. Cause he, I think he only retired in like 85 or something like that. So this would have been one of his first years. And. You know, like one one thing I will notice is that like Buck Martinez is good at his job. It's not like like he is sort of a born broadcaster, which is rare for a former player. You know, they can think of guys like Rick Sutcliffe and uh, Phil Rizzuto and things like that, but there aren't many of them. And Buck Martinez is in that category. However, the dude has a pro has used to have a bigger problem, still has a problem with race. And <laughs> like I I say it all the time, and I get some flack for it. This was a game where he had that. So. 
We mentioned Julio Franco. I was going to say, are you going to bring up when he the comment he makes when Franco makes an error? Yeah, so his, Franco makes that He calls that it his, error. his lackadaisical style, I think yeah, is what he nonchalant, says. Yeah, his nonchalant style. Yeah, which, I didn't which, care for that either. Which Buck Martinez, you can guarantee, if he has a criticism and he's calling a player nonchalant, I guarantee you it is a, it is a black or Hispanic player that he's talking about. It is... And, you know, Buck Martinez sounds like he's Hispanic, but he's as white as they come. I don't know what his actual background is, but, like, he mispronounces Latin names all the time. So I'm assuming he didn't grow up in a Latin household. Uh, but, yeah, he's uh, just an interesting, weird dude. I'm not, and I'm, not, I'm not out here saying that he's like, is a racist or anything, but just the way he can sometimes talk about players, and I don't think it's necessarily intentional, but yeah. in the 80s, this, was, this is how you talked about uh, black and Latino players, yes. right? They mm-hmm. were... They were either fiery and athletic. If they were really athletic players, then they were nonchalant because it looked so easy what they were doing. They looked lazy. They, they yeah. relied on their physical mm-hmm. gifts or whatever the fuck. And it's this like racist coded language compared to, of course, the hard nose grinder that would describe the exact same player if he was white. But yeah, and, and of course, what's funny about this particular instance with Julio Franco is he's calling it nonchalant. He went on for a, like an inning and a half about how nonchalant. And even yeah, though he had spent the first part it. of the game talking about how his knee was injured. He was clearly laboring from the knee the whole game. He hit a double earlier in the game, and he, like, hobbled into second. They were wondering if they were going to take him out of the game, and that was in the first inning, I think, or second inning. And then they did take him out of the game shortly after that that error, and Buck Martinez was forced to eat crow a bit, and he actually apologized and was like, you know, I apologize to Julio Franco. I kind of forgot that he had the knee problem, and that might have led to why he sort of dogged it on that play, which he didn't even really dog it on that play, but just an interesting little thing there from Buck Martinez, who I, I will... I will freely admit I don't particularly enjoy as a broadcaster. I find him to be an ornery old bastard a lot of the time. <laughs> so, um, you know, I know he had cancer last year and that means we have to like him or whatever, but I had cancer too and people hate me. So whatever. That's <laughs> uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe I shouldn't say that. I don't know. The guy's just I, never impressed me as a, as a, as a broadcaster or as like a, anytime I sort of hear him talk about race, I always like raise my eyebrow. Cause it's like, what are you, what are you, t- what are you getting at there, Buck? Anyway. That was all I had. Okay. Basically. So do you want to get on to the trivia questions? Yeah, we'll do trivia, then we'll wrap it up. All right. So I'm going to ask you mine first. So obviously uh, Fred McGriff was in the starting lineup in this game. He batted Mm -hmm. fifth for the Blue Jays. Um, Mm -hmm. This was kind of his breakout season. It was the first year of his career that he would have an OPS over 900. How many times in his career did Frank or Frank Fred McGriff have an OPS over 900? Hmm. Future Hall of Famer Fred McGriff, which yeah, that's a discussion so, okay. for another day. But a couple things, uh, I think that Fred McGriff, you know, a brilliant player, loved watching him, was maybe a bit overrated, continues to be maybe a little bit overrated. Also, uh, you're, you're kind of setting me up here, I think, because it's the steroid era and it's Fred McGriff and he was obviously very good and, you know, borderline Hall of Famer at worst. Hall of Famer, if you really believe in that. And I'm going to say like three. I'm going to say three. That is incorrect. Okay. He had eight. Oh, so you were, you did a double misdirect, you sneaky uh-huh. bastard. So... Here's the funny part, because I, I saw that, and I'm like, wow, that's quite a few times he had an OPS over 900. I wonder where that ranks all time. It's, it's not <laughs> even, like, remotely close. Um, if you if you lap off, like, all the pre-integration guys, you know, because, like, 
Jimmy Flax had like in a thousand OPS like every year of his career, and like you know, so did Babe. Yeah, in the thirties, the thirties yeah. were nuts. Yeah, that, the thirties were steroid era before steroids. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so if you lap all of that off, that puts him like I think he was like thirty fourth alt or like tied for thirty fourth all time or something. Like there's there's a lot of guys who have done that since then. Uh, but uh, yeah. no, I was I was surprised because I I would have been with you. I would have thought it would have been less than that. Um, his career OPS is 886, so it's not even like his mm-hmm. overall career. Uh, now, mind you, he had eight years at or above 900 out of a 19-year career. So if you do the math, you know, it does make sense that it ends up less than that. But, uh, yeah, Fred yeah. McGriff, actually, when you look at his numbers, much better in the earlier part of his career. Oh, yeah, I argue, well, I argue that he should go into the Hall of Fame as a Blue Jay. Yes. I think he played more games with the Blue Jays than any other team. And I know he was more known for his Braves years. Uh, so but like he he had five years with the Jays, five years with the Braves, and five years with the Rays. And yeah, but I think he played more years, games with the Blue Jays though, didn't he? Yeah. So he played more more games with the Blue Jays than the Rays. He had more games with Atlanta than Blue okay, Jays. Okay, so he did have more. But yeah. his numbers were significantly better with the Blue Jays. Um, yeah. I mean, he was in his prime. He was yeah. No. So to put it in perspective, he had a 153 OPS plus with Toronto. With Atlanta, it was 128. I think that yeah, says a, a lot. Difference. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe it's career war that he has more with the Blue Jays. I think that's maybe what. I was uh, thinking, but... let's see here. He does have more career war with uh, the Blue Jays. That's correct. He had 19.4, 11.1 with Atlanta, nine with Tampa Bay. 9.5 with San Diego, 3.3 with the Cubs, and 0.4 with uh, the Dodgers, which I do not remember that, but apparently that was <laughs> Yeah, he did in the later part of his career, yeah. He's, it's funny because he's the only Hall of Famer that is in this game, which is interesting compared to the other two games where there were several. Uh, That's the, only the other Hall thing that I feel like is something that I notice a lot with 80s baseball and I wonder if that's why people have this view that, you know, oh, there's only so many Hall of Famers and blah, blah, blah. It feels like there's not a lot of Hall of Famers from this particular era of baseball. Yeah, I don't know if not. it's there, because... It's, it's pretty historically underrepresented. Yeah, I don't know if it's because the talent pool was that much worse or if, like, just what it was, but it just it seems like whatever I, think, I watch... I think I'm going to speculate here, but I think also that was sort of the, the first real era of free agency where it, like, really ramped up in the 80s, and I think that there was a general anti-labor, anti-player sentiment in the media and elsewhere among fans in that time, like more than there has been since. Yeah. Uh, and and certainly more than there is today. And I think I wonder sometimes if they just didn't want to vote any of those guys in because they didn't like that they were making big money. You know, like I sometimes wonder if that's the reason. Maybe. Because um, there are a lot of guys who should be. I mean, guys like Burt Blylevin have been made whole uh, over time. But like, you know, there's a lot of dudes from that era that, you know, like Alan Alan Trammell took a while to get in. Lou yeah. Whitaker's still not in. You know, there's like, and like the Blue Jays teams, McGriff was the is like the only Hall of Famer that played on those teams really. You know, like those '80s teams that were very good. Like Jesse Barfield obviously wasn't a Hall of Famer. The and... next best player off of that, maybe Cecil Fielder. Well, yeah, but not with the Blue Jays. No, but not with the Blue Jays. Though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we didn't even talk about Cecil, but that's okay. We'll we'll get to him another time, I'm sure. Um, so I have I have two. Um, Two trivia questions for you, and sure. you know, uh, the, we'll we'll do this. All right. So the first one's about Cleveland. The second one's about Toronto. Okay. Okay. So Scott Bales, yes, of course, had a very good game here. Pitched very well. Uh, no hitter into the seventh. Scott Bales pitched five complete games in 1988 for Cleveland. 
all five of his career complete games came in this season. Huh. Uh, but but clearly, manager Doc Edwards loved to push his starters to complete games because the top two single-season complete game leaders in Cleveland franchise history were both from this 1988 season with 12 and 11, respectively. Scott Brady, who were those pitchers? I I have no idea, honestly. I, I couldn't <laughs> even tell you. <laughs> really? I'm surprised. I figured, like... You might know who the good pitchers were on this team and, and just sort of start guessing them. You can't even guess the like two guys who would have who had 12 and 11 I, complete games respectively? If, if you tell me the names, I might recognize them. And I'm sure I've probably looked at them before, but it's this specific era of Cleveland baseball, like, I, I am not terribly familiar with. I know, you know... Everything there is to know about the 90s teams onward, I can tell you a lot about the teams from the 40s and 50s. Um, you know, I know just enough about some of the teams from the 30s and then the 1920 team specifically, which was their first World Series winning team. But the, the like, late 60s, most of the 70s and 80s is kind of a black hole for me because... Yeah. I mean, honestly, that was that was when they were at their absolute worst. They were terrible during those years. Like yeah. I, I know about the standouts from that era. I know a couple players here and there because my you know dad told me about them. Like you know he, I, I already oh, mentioned he, he liked dad probably would have told you about these guys. Uh, he, he might have. I, I, I don't know. Uh, but yeah, so, who, who was it? So with twelve, so with twelve, the franchise record holder for single season complete games at twelve is Greg Swindell. That is a name and... I know. And uh, with 11 in second that year was Knuckleballer Tom Candiotti, future Toronto Blue That Bay is another name I know. Okay. So yep. There you go. Greg Swindell and Tom Candiotti are one and two in uh, single season complete games, and both from that season, both from 88. I was looking up to see if Scott Bales' five was any, uh, you know, how high it was up the list of, of Cleveland uh, all time. Yeah. yeah, he didn't. Scott Bales didn't throw a single other complete game in his entire career except for the five he threw in this season. Candy uh, He was mar- largely a reliever of mine yeah. later in his career. Candy Addy had a surprisingly good career. 41.1 yeah. baseball reference war. That's yeah, he was good. Impressively good. Um, he was very, very good. You know what, actually? Now that I think about it, era. Where, I, where I've seen his name before, he came back to Cleveland in 99. That's, yeah, he did. I, I, I may have a card of him somewhere. From when yeah. he came back, that, that he was might traded be to the Jays. He was traded to the Jays, I think, in the '91 season, and that was like a, their big deadline acquisition that year. That because they really needed pitching, so Candiotti was the guy that they went went and got in '91. Uh, and then, it, if memory serves, he wasn't that good for the Jays. But uh, I think he was gone again after that season. I have I have a card. I have one of my one of the cards I can picture in my head uh, as a kid is a is a '92. Uh, I want to say tops. Tom Candiotti card on the Blue Jays. But uh, the second question I had for you was related to the Blue Jays, and then we can wrap it up. So um, we're going to play a little game of higher or lower. Okay. All right. And it's going to be pertaining to Jesse Barfield. Because I was looking at this this weird 80s Blue Jays core that just didn't have any real Hall of Famers outside of McGriff, and just but were good for a long time, for like seven or eight straight years. And that's weird. That's weird. Like, I feel like if you have a team that's really good for seven or eight years, you got several Hall of Famers on there. The Jays really didn't have any. They had they had guys who would come in from other teams who were definitely more famous for being on other teams. But, uh, you know, it's in terms of, like, homegrown Hall of Famers, they didn't really have any until Roberto Alomar, and he wasn't even really homegrown. Um, but Fred McGriff, I guess, in retrospect. So higher or lower, 
Uh, Jesse Barfield in his Blue Jays career between 1981 and 1989. Half of that 89 season was with the Yankees, or most of it actually was with the Yankees, but we'll include it anyway. Uh, 81 to 89, um, Jesse Barfield had 33.4 Fangraphs war. Okay. Which which was eighth among all outfielders in in that time frame. So I'm just going to list off some names, and you tell me, does this guy have more or less war in that period than Jesse Barfield, all right? Okay. 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 Start with an easy one. Ricky Henderson. I would have to say more. Yeah. Ricky Henderson at 60. He was number one there at 60. Uh, Let's go with another one. Tim Raines. More? Yes. Okay. 46.5. Kirk Gibson. (sighs) More? Question mark? Less by a couple is thirty point four. I figured it was gonna be close. Pedro Guerrero. Less. More, just barely, thirty four point five. Okay. Daryl Strawberry. Uh this is a trick one because Strawberry would have come up in like what, eighty three? Uh more? Less, twenty nine. Wow. Uh, okay. Yeah, that one surprised me and, and uh there's there's one one more and I should have maybe said this one first. Tony Gwynn. You know, Hall of Famer, Tony Gwynn, greatest hitters, one of the greatest hitters of all time. I feel like this one's a trick question. Uh, hmm, but is it a bluff or a double bluff like I did earlier? Mm-hmm. One never knows. Less? Yeah, he's less. Okay. Less, but would that surprise? That, that's the reason I asked this question. I wanted to get to Tony Gwynn. 32, so he was close. But if you had told me Jesse Barfield versus Tony Gwynn from 1981 to 1989. Which one would you have rather had? I would have said Tony Gwynn, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know he had a longer career and obviously was very good in the 90s. Uh, but uh, And whereas Barfield was largely out of baseball. Um, but yeah, Jesse Barfield, quite good, turns out. Yeah. Not Hall of Famer because he didn't have the longevity in his career, but was... Uh, you know, close to Hall of Fame peak for his uh, his time with the Blue Jays. Yeah, my uh, my baseball hot take has always been that Tony Gwynn was wildly overrated. Um, like, <laughs> yes, he's a Hall of Famer. Yes, he had one skill that was absurdly good, maybe the best we've ever seen, at least in the modern era, at that particular skill. Um, and yeah, his contact ability, right? And that. and obviously, I appreciate players with that kind of skill. Um, I do have a Stephen Kwan jersey. And right. But in I, 2022, he's Nick Madrigal. <laughs> yeah. No, my, my whole thing with Gwyn is... That's true. That was mean. That was mean to Tony Gwynn. Yeah, There's no, no reason for me to hate on Tony no, Gwynn. No, that's actually very cruel. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, like, there's there's absolutely something with high contact, high batting average guys that I, I think doesn't necessarily translate into their offensive production. And it's not it's not something in the war, but it's something, you know, with their approach... And I think that can sometimes and have an external maybe effect. The, like we're learning more about how like different kinds of hitters in the lineup actually does matter. The yes. Blue Jays from 2022 are a good example of that. Yeah, They're all the same kind of hitter, and they so a, a pitcher figures out how to pitch to them, and then you get the whole lineup out. Right. Um, whereas you got guys like Tony Gwynn in the middle of a bunch of bashers. You know, you have to change your approach there, and then maybe that throw yeah. off the pitcher. But Tony, yeah. Tony Gwynn, Tony Gwynn was very, 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 very good. He also yes. early in his career was a stolen base and defense. Yeah, no, he actually early, early career Tony Gwynn, I think was really good. Um, and, and I, and it, overall, like he, he absolutely is a hall of famer and from all, yeah, he had a really long yeah. career too. He had the longevity part. 
Yes, and from all, from everything I've ever read or seen about him, was a genuinely wonderful person and human being who treated everyone with, uh, you know, just genuine kindness and respect. And I know he had a big influence on a lot of guys that came from San Diego State, like uh, Steven Strasburg. Um, yeah, he was the manager there. Yeah. The last part of his life. Yeah, coached there for pretty much his entire post-playing career. But yeah, um, I, I do think, though, that, you know, people talk about, you know, oh, Tony Gwynn was, you know, the best hitter I ever saw. And, okay, maybe he was the best contact hitter you ever saw. But I, I think his hitting profile was very one-dimensional. But I, I won't yeah. I won't tread on that for too long because it'll just turn into me bashing a guy who was, in fact, a very good baseball player and a Hall of Famer. Yes, but anyway, exactly. It's, yeah. like, it's like me shitting on Fred McGriff. Sure. He's still amazing. Yeah. Um also, uh, I'm just going to say a thing, and then we're going to stop recording. Tony Gunanitro, same player. Okay, bye! <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that that's true. They just seem like the same player to me. No. Uh, similar profiles, that's for sure. Yeah. Anyway. I'm really going to cut it off there. That's where I'm cutting it off. Okay. <laughs> so no, that's stop fine. Recording yeah. anytime. No, I'll, I'll stop now. Oh, no, wait. We, no, we can't. We got it. Sorry. Let's cut back in here. We're going to cut back in here and do and do our CTAs. I was getting into the podcasting weeds. Yeah. Some calls to action. We're, we're in our um, nascent stage here. Scott and I are not influential people. We don't really know a lot of high-profile baseball people who can make this podcast into something good. So if you're listening to this and you're enjoying what you hear, please, 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 please tell people to follow us on Twitter at Coax Baseball and to uh, subscribe to the podcast wherever they find good podcasts. Hopefully we're up in all of them. Yes. Uh, if if we're not, uh, email us if you know of one. But we should be – it might take a couple weeks for us to get into, like, Apple. They're notoriously dicks when it comes to this stuff. But um, And Google, too. But, you know, we're probably in your favorite podcast app. So tell people about that. If you can rate and review us on any one of your uh, podcast platforms, whether that's Spotify or Apple Podcasts or Google, wherever you're listening to us, if there's a way to rate and review us, that helps a lot, Um, even the bad ones. So if you want to tell us we're dicks, that's fine. It's cool. Yeah, just uh, do that. Do that sort of thing and talk to us. We're lonely. We won't bite you. We're we're nice. Speak for yourself. I'm not going to yuck anybody's yum. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I think we can we can call it there. All right, take care, everybody. Right. Oh wait, we didn't do the thing again. Just cutting in a second time. What's the game we're watching next time? Holy shit, we're good at this. What we're is the game good. we're watching next time? Have we decided on anything yet? Yeah, I think we decided on the 2003 Yankees Red Sox game. You got that? Yes, yes. Somewhere uh, we are going to discuss the rivalry next time. Yeah, the rivalry. The capital T. The lowly downtrodden trademark. Cursed Red Sox versus the evil Empire Yankees. Uh, real talk, though, screw both of them. I despise both of those franchises. <laughs> but they are important to this era of yes, baseball. Yes, they are. We have to eventually get around to doing that. And, like, entertaining baseball with great players, so it's not like we're suffering. We'll put we'll put the, put the link in the, in the um, show notes and probably on Twitter and stuff like that if you follow us there. Uh, it, yeah, you, you can go and, go and watch it before we do, so you can come in knowing all the things that we know and again if you if you watch it before we release the episode and you want to uh tweet us your observations or email us your observations at uh coax baseball at proton.me you can do that as well 
All right, Scott. Well, thanks for doing this again. We're just yeah. always gonna go long. We're just always gonna go long. It's it's a given. We we both talk yeah. too much. We will get this down to under an hour. We'll get better. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. See you, buddy. Bye.